Romans 2, verse 17. As we continue in our study of Romans. Growing up, I believed there was a God. I believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I knew that He died and that He rose again on the third day. I knew that He ascended into heaven. I knew one day that He would judge the living and the dead to determine whether their destination would be heaven or hell. I wasn't too worried because I was taught that I was born right. I was born into the right religion, which for me was Roman Catholicism. I had admirably performed the basic rites and rituals. Although I remember very little about it, my baptism was spectacular. (laughs) Actually, I wore a little dress, a christening dress, which my wife always makes fun of me. Confession, First Holy Communion, and then Confirmation. And so by birth and by rites and rituals, I'd be going to heaven. If not immediately, eventually. What a satanic deception all of that was. I was on the broad path that leads to destruction. All these things were at best my own works of righteousness, which would fall far short of getting me into heaven. If ever there were a people born right and into privilege, it was and it is the Jews. If it were be, uh, possible to be saved and to get into heaven based on birth and rights, and rituals, then the Jew would have an advantage for sure. Paul will effectively argue that even the privileged Jew must be justified by God by believing in Jesus Christ. Paul discusses Jewish confidence in Hebrew birth in verses 17 through 24. So let's take a quick look at those. Verse 17, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. These are the things the Jews trusted to get them to heaven. Called a Jew means they were part of God's chosen nation. God called Abraham, actually Abram at the time, out of Ur of the Chaldees and had made a great nation through him. They were and are God's chosen nation. They were called Rest on the law means they believe that their possession of the law gave them ultimate spiritual rest and salvation. Make your boast in God has to do with the fact that the one true God had made unconditional promises to the Jews. Uh, And, you know, in a religious boast off, uh, the Jews would certainly uh, have the advantage. Verse 18 You know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law. Know his will meant the Jew had special revelation from God. They had the Hebrew Bible. They could approve the things that are excellent because God had told them what things to do, what things not to do, what things to love, what things to hate. And so they had a a very good knowledge of the heart and the mind of God on those issues. Jews thus had a great advantage over the Gentiles. As we saw in chapters 1 and 2, or if you read through them, you would see, the Gentiles, all they had was creation all around them and conscience within them to guide them to God. And though we talked about those at length, we discovered that they are insufficient in and of themselves to uh, accomplish salvation. God has to also bring 
to those who seek through creation and conscience special revelation. And so the Jew is saying, hey, I, I know God's will. I approve the things that are excellent. I'm instructed out of the law. We, we know all about God. We have the special revelation. When, when some poor Gentile pagan looks out and thinks, you know, that someone must have created all of this. There must be a, a divine intelligence. Yeah, hey, we know who that is. He's the God of the Bible. And, and they could uh, explain that uh, through special revelation. Then in verse 19, you're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. It's sounding pretty good to be a Jew. All their privileges gave the Jews a sense of superior knowledge. They knew the truth and they had the law. They were at the top of the religious pile. Gentiles must convert to Judaism in order to enter into these privileges. Uh, you know, you see that even in the New Testament. Uh, there was, uh, you know, before uh, around the time of Christ, before the birth of the church, if someone wanted to know God, they had to convert to Judaism. None of these things, however, was sufficient to save even one Jew, as we'll see. They, too, were lost and in need of the salvation that can only come through being justified by faith in Jesus Christ. They, too, needed to be declared righteous by God because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Don't forget that the point of these opening chapters of Romans is to establish the universal problem that all of mankind has fallen short of the glory of God. And that includes both divisions that the Bible is concerned with, Jew and everybody else who would be a Gentile. We dealt with the Gentiles, chapters 1 and 2, now the Jew. Uh, all of these privileges, all of these uh, fantastic benefits, and yet they too are going to need to have faith in Christ. There is no one, Jew or Gentile, who is righteous. And as we begin to see in verse 21, even with all these advantages and privileges, being a Jew outwardly brought no change inwardly. Verse 21, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, the Jews taught others, supposedly, about God's righteousness. But as Paul is going to point out, they remained unrighteous. Their teaching had no power to bring change, and it was evidenced by the lack of real change in themselves. And so, though they were teaching the right things, as it were, the, from God's law, it didn't affect an inward change in anyone. It was all external. For example, Paul asked them this series of questions, and we would answer, these are rhetorical questions, they still stole and they still committed adultery. And they did so both openly and secretly while they were busy teaching the law and telling other people about the righteousness of God. Openly, the Jews stole, for example, in their practice of what was called korban, K-O-R-B-A-N in our English Bible. Korban is a word that just means given to God or dedicated to God. There's a passage in the Gospels where 
Jesus is talking about uh, their practice of korban. And uh, what would happen is a Jew would declare some of his treasure, his possessions, his money, he would declare it korban, meaning that it was dedicated to God. But it was a strategy, it was a ploy, so that his aging parents who needed help couldn't benefit from it. In other words, he didn't have to help them uh, because it was Corban. It was dedicated to God. It wasn't, I'm sorry, mom and dad, I can't help you because after all, I've just dedicated these, these coins Corban. However, I can still use them. Uh, and it was an effective strategy to steal from God. And today we would call it elder abuse uh, because they were supposed to take care of their elders. But instead they said, well, I, I can't really help you, mom. Corban. And everybody was OK with that. But it was it was robbery. It was stealing from their parents. Openly, the Jews committed adultery, for example, by allowing divorce for grounds other than adultery. Jesus came on the scene and he said, look, you know, the way you guys practice divorce, it's crazy. Moses gave in to the hardness of your hearts. He said, you know, you're divorcing for any reason. And as long as you have a certificate of divorce, you think you're clear under the law. But he says that for reasons other than physical adultery, when you divorce and marry another, guess what? You're committing adultery. And so openly... In their teaching, their very teaching, they were committing adultery. And so Paul is just busting out on these guys. It's fantastic. He says, hey, you've got all these great privileges. You know the truth. You have the law. You're the teacher of the law. People have to convert to Judaism. Let's take a really honest look at what's happening in your life. That was just open sin. They were also doing these things, of course, secretly. Secretly, just like everyone else, the Jews stole whenever he coveted anything. And we all do that. At some point or another, you covet goods or a person or a position or something. And, and it's, it's, that, it's that internal desire that gets us into trouble. And secretly, the Jews committed adultery by, as Jesus pointed out, looking upon a man or a woman with lust. He said, hey, you, you, you maybe not committing physical adultery, but if you look upon a woman with lust, he said to the Pharisees, you're already committing adultery in your heart. And so Paul is just being, uh, we would say today, brutally honest with them. And he's saying, yeah, it, it doesn't, you're a Jew and you've got all these things, but you understand that you're still just as unrighteous as any Gentile. As for idolatry and the robbing of temples... Uh, while the Jews may not have idols in the traditional sense, they did allow idolatrous practices to go on in God's temple. You remember the money changers were there uh, robbing from the people. And they would sell approved sacrificial animals. And so you couldn't bring your own animal. You had to get one from the concessions, uh, you know, there. And they had pre-approved sacrificial animals uh, you know, which could be bought at an exorbitant price. Or this may simply refer to having idols in their heart and fantasizing about them and, in fact, robbing the temples of the world. Um, you can commit a uh, you can have idols, obviously, without, you know, having the actual position or power or possession. Now, when Jesus was on the earth, 
he strongly rebuked the Pharisees for urging others to do what they themselves were unable to do. He said they put religious burdens on men that they themselves were not able to bear. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus was talking about. Here, uh, Paul accuses the typical Jew, not necessarily a Pharisee or a scribe or a Sadducee, of doing the same thing the Pharisees did. And so it's one thing if you're a Jew. A lot of the Jews didn't like the Pharisees. Uh, You wouldn't have liked Pharisees either. They were pompous windbags. Uh, and and you, you know, if you're in the crowd, you would love to see Jesus cut them down a little bit, uh, down to size, because they always made you feel bad. You you looked up to them in the sense that you thought they were the religious guys, but they made you feel bad. And, and but Paul Paul's not talking to Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees here. He's talking to the average Jew. He says in verse 23, "You who make your boast in the law." Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? Obviously, if you were breaking the very law you were boasting of having and keeping, it was dishonoring to God. And so Paul is simply saying he's established that they're all breaking the law uh, simultaneously while teaching it and saying they uphold it. And he says, obviously, that's a hypocrisy that dishonors God. For the name of God, verse 24, is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. This is a quote from the prophet Isaiah. And it was intended, among other things, to cause these first century Jewish readers to think back over the history of Israel. Far from being a light to the other Gentile nations, Israel's history was one in which her sin caused the name of God, who dwelt in her midst, to be blasphemed. Israel had been conquered by the Assyrians, then by the Babylonians, Then they were subject to the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks and then at the time of this writing the Romans. All because of their disobedience to God. Uh, And as a result they had effectively as a nation blasphemed the name of God. Caused his name to be blasphemed and hated. Uh, And so, um, you know... Uh, this is these are hard words. I this is the kind of sermon you know. You realize you're only in chapter the beginning, middle of chapter two in this sermon of Paul's. This is the kind of thing people walk out on. You know, say, oh, we got a letter from Paul the apostle. Wow, this is great. Uh, no, it's not. And and they you know this these these are uh, this has the uh, possibility of being very offensive, although it's very true. Israel's greater privileges put her under greater responsibility and she had miserably failed. Now having said all this, I do think we need to understand how difficult it might be for an ethnic Jew to think he was anything other than chosen and therefore saved. He might, for example, point to circumcision uh, as proof that he'd been set apart from birth. No other people circumcised their male children on the eighth day of life as a ritual. God used it as a mark or a sign authenticating that the person had made the old covenant with him. It was done on the eighth day to indicate that Israelites were born into a covenant relationship with God. It seems to indicate that all you have to do is be born, right? You're an eight-day-old baby boy and... This ritual is being performed on you. You don't know what you're doing. You have no idea. It seems, outwardly, it seems as if God is saying, yeah, you're, you're part of my forever family. 
That's not exactly right, though, because circumcision was always meant as a symbol. It was never intended to save anyone. Even in the Old Testament, God told Israel that he was looking for an inward change, a change in the heart, sometimes called a circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 10:16. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Be stiff-necked no longer. And when you're a Jew and you read something like that, you realize, oh, this physical circumcision, it didn't really save me. It, it doesn't make me a, 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 you know, a person that's guaranteed heaven. It's an outward symbol of an inward work that God wants to do. Why am I cutting away the flesh? Because God wants to cut away the flesh within me and give me an inward change. The prophet Jeremiah told the circumcised Jew of the 6th century, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. It's Jeremiah 4, 4. And so the prophets seem to understand this, that circumcision was not, therefore, a right by which you were guaranteed salvation or uh, entrance into heaven. It, it was something that looked forward to a future uh, spiritual change in the heart. The truth is, as we know as Christians, no outward ordinance or ritual can save anyone because God demands a change of heart, not just a change of behavior or what we call the flesh. And since our heart is deceitful and wicked, since we are born with a sin nature, since sin is imputed to us, then God has to affect this change in us. It can only be done through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf and our believing in that where God declares us righteous. And so, uh, verse 25, circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law, but if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. After a time, the Jews became so proud of the outward ritual that they contemptuously called Gentiles as a whole the uncircumcision. And so it was a, a derogatory uh, phrase for Gentiles. So he's, he's the uncircumcision. And we, we have circumcision. We're saved. We're the chosen people. They're the uncircumcision. And it's, it's just as derogatory as uh, any of the terrible you know, things that we call uh, different ethnic groups today. And this is pretty strong language on Paul's part. He is essentially saying in this section that a Jew was no better off than a Gentile. Worse, that a Jew was just like a Gentile. And then he backed it up with irrefutable logic. In verse 26, he says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Or in other words, the, he's uncircumcised physically, but won't it show that he's circumcised spiritually? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are transgressing the law. In other words, what good does it do you to have a physical circumcision if spiritually you're breaking God's law? And worse, you're boasting about it. And so Paul was saying that the uncircumcised Gentile who followed his own conscience and in principle kept the righteous requirements of a law he didn't even know, that person had a circumcised Remember, we talked at great length about the, the, the pagan 
and his groping after God. And we saw that creation and conscience are things that God can use to lead someone towards him and give them greater revelation. And that it's possible without having the written law to do things that are consistent with the law, to not lie, to not steal, to, you know, that kind of a thing. And so that's all Paul is saying. He says, so you've got, you call these people the uncircumcision as if they are no better than, uh, you know, hell, you know, fodder for hell. He goes, but a lot of these people are actually keeping the outward requirements of the law better than you. And so that counts, you know, as the circumcision of the heart, as it were. The circumcised Jew who broke the law had an uncircumcised heart. And so circumcision is important, but it's the spiritual circumcision of the heart which is depicted by the cutting away of the flesh. Physical circumcision, by the way, no longer necessary for spiritual purposes. It was a forerunner and type of what God really wanted. And this is why the assembled apostles and elders of the New Testament church declared circumcision to be one of the physical requirements of the Old Covenant that is not necessary for Christians. And so, you know, every now and then somebody will ask a question about circumcision. It's strictly a medical issue today. And so just do what your doctor says. Don't ask me anymore. Spiritually, it has nothing to do with anything. You and your doctor figure all that out. Uh, and you know, it's funny, and I've been alive long enough to know that it goes in uh, waves. You know, sometimes every, you know, circumcision is, a study comes out where you, know, you should be circumcised, then comes out you shouldn't be circumcised, doctors fight over it, have fun with all that. Romans uh, 2.28, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. True circumcision is a matter of the heart, not just cutting away of the flesh. Physical circumcision pictures outwardly what God meant to do inwardly. Now, Paul here is talking to Jews about the rites and rituals of the law. He did not say, and he did not mean to say, that there was no longer any difference in God's plan between Jews and Gentiles. He's going to make it abundantly clear in chapters 9, 10, and 11 that God still looks upon the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a very special way. They are still set apart. They are still chosen. God is not through with them. He has a definite plan for them. And so none of this is an argument that there is no Jew, there is no Israel, uh, it's just the church. You know, that's, Paul was dealing with the pagans and now he says, I want to talk to you Jews who think you're made righteous by keeping the law. Hey, guess what, guys? You don't keep the law. You're breaking the law. You might trust in a ritual like circumcision, but you're not even really spiritually circumcised. And a Gentile who's uncircumcised is more spiritual than you are. None of this has anything to do with canceling out God's promises to Israel. Paul was simply stating to Jews that their privileges of birth and special revelation and the law were not sufficient to save them. You may not be aware of it, but it's becoming increasingly more popular for evangelical Christians uh, to become fascinated with uh, Judaism. Uh, and there's different names for it. 
but uh, a lot of times it's called the Jewish Roots Movement or the Hebraic Roots Movement. Uh, and uh, Christians are fascinated with the Jewish, the supposed Jewish roots of biblical Christianity. I'll let one of their proponents define what that means. And uh, you know, I'm sure there's different takes on this, but this is a, an interesting one. Uh, this gentleman says, if you're a Christian, then most likely you grew up in a Christian church where you were taught to be a follower of Jesus. Seldom does it dawn upon the traditional Christian that the fact that Jesus Christ, as depicted in the New Testament, was not a Christian, but is depicted as a faithful Orthodox Jew with a completely different religious belief system than a typical Christian. By the way, I just like it that he says Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian. I, I think that's fascinating to me, but, uh, you know... Fewer still ever think at the ramifications of such a statement and go on unknowingly as a traditional Christian, as if they are actually a follower of Jesus, never once allowing the full weight of such a statement to hit home where they begin to compare doctrinally the Jewish faith with their Christian birth faith. Fewer still ever think that a Jewish Jesus of the first century could not and would not ever ascribe and adopt many of the same religious beliefs which they hold and cherish, which has been taught them by Gentile Roman Christianity. And so the idea, that's a pretty strong statement, but the, the idea is that evangelical believers like us who are Gentiles, we need to understand what it meant to be a God-fearer and convert to worshiping the way Jewish Christians did in the first century. And so the argument is, and uh, you know, you're, you're probably not swayed by this, you may not even have ever encountered this, but the argument is, you know, Jesus was a Jew and all the first Christians were Jews. And so if you really want to be a, a Christian, you have to go the route of the God-fearer of the first century who had to convert to Judaism and then follow, you know, the law. The truth is, Many in this Jewish roots movement are depending upon the tradition of rabbis who wrote centuries after the first century. Uh, and they're not really looking at what was going on in the first century, which you can do where? In the book of Acts. And what I love about the book of Acts is that Paul would fight these guys today. These are the kind of guys that he called the dogs of the circumcision uh, and and there was a church council about this because there was a whole movement like this. There were a bunch of Jewish guys who were upset that Paul was preaching the gospel and Gentiles were getting saved and there were no requirements for them to become Jewish. They didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow dietary regulations. You know, it was just they were always waiting for Paul to to, you know, bring down the other hammer and say, OK, now that you Gentiles are somewhat saved, you can complete your salvation by converting to Judaism. And when Paul never taught that, then they would come in and teach that. They'd say, well, you know, Paul got you, you know, uh, he, he he got you so far, but now we're going to get you the rest of the way in to salvation. You, you need to at least be circumcised and follow the, you know, keep the Sabbath and do a few other things. And Paul came against them, and it finally uh, culminated in the church council at Jerusalem, Acts uh, 15, I believe it is. And um, they heard both sides, and the end of it was, hey, listen, we're not going to put any burden at all on Gentiles. They don't have to do anything Jewish. They're Gentiles. They've been set free. Let them be free. Just... Tell them not to do things that openly offend Jews so that they can continue to preach the gospel. 
And that was the end of it. And so now centuries later, people are coming along and they're saying, you are missing out because you need to become a Jew. And it usually starts with the keeping of the Sabbath and then certain dietary regulations and all of these other things. And, and, and people feel like, well, yeah, Jesus Christ wasn't a Christian. He was a Jew. And uh, it's, you know, I'm kind of being a little facetious. It's very real. You know, we know pastors who have converted, as it were, from uh, just being Christians to being, uh, you know, to the Jewish roots movement. Uh, is there Now, what I like about studying the Bible is it is important sometimes to know what was being said in the context. How would a Jew receive this? What would, things like, you know, the uncircumcision, uh, you know, well, wow, that's a big insult there because of how the Jew... But there's no talk in the Bible about you as a Gentile having to do anything with the law or uh, coming under those things. And so you just need to fight that and enjoy your freedom in Jesus Christ. Don't be fooled. Having begun in the Spirit, you cannot be made perfect in the flesh. 